What's good? We are back with episode 2 of Upepsia. One time for your mind because I told you that we won't stop and no, you cannot make me stop this horrendous undertaking that I am engaged upon. I wanted to be less drunk for this one, but somehow ended up being more drunk, but also more lucid, so it's a wash and you guys are going to put up with it because this is the only thing that gives me joy in any given week, so yeah. And I understand my takes are still a little bit late because we're still figuring out this recording schedule. I've got to balance it with my roommate who likes to Twitch stream, and yes, this is a real problem in 2018, but as my recently released from prison co-worker says life is about obstacles and how you overcome them so that's what we're doing one thing i did want to get in on is the swift descent into hell of a one george herbert walker bush i find him a fascinating figure in the annals of american empire precisely because he was so goddamn boring and it is actually that level of boringness that allowed him to quietly execute so much evil. We're not going to get into all of it now, but I will say that Ross Duthat is right in the sense that we do miss the Wasps because they were able to carry out all of these crimes and atrocities with some vague sense of dignity and righteousness that, honestly, Trump and company, or even Pence and company, just can't pull off anymore. Like, the American empire has reached a turning point, and we all need to recognize that it's all downhill from here. But while there are so many things from the highway of death in the first Gulf War to banning people that are HIV positive from entering the country. The thing that most sticks in my craw somehow is the full-scale invasion of Panama, precisely because it was about getting rid of his wimp factor, which is astounding to me for a few reasons. One, because of the cheerful display of what we now call toxic masculinity at the highest levels of power, but also that this was a legitimate talking point that could be disseminated among the mass media. Like, think about that shit for half a second. The late 80s and early 90s were a very scary time, and we're talking about a man who literally got on the congressional floor and talks about ushering in, in a new world order and made it sound so incredibly boring. Because boredom inducement is always one of the most effective strategies of the ruling class. They're always like, yeah, you don't want to deal, you don't want to learn about this shit because it's honestly just so boring. So just don't even worry about it because we got it. And you wouldn't even want to know because it's just so boring. It's so much work and tedium, right? Because honestly, there's a lot of work that goes into war crimes. It's not just, you know, people think that a highly developed empire can just pop off. But no, you have to pop off with at least four white papers prepared, you know? And also that they played Panama by Van Halen as they were invading like, this is kind of why sometimes my eyes glaze over when people talk about the rise of fascism, because how can you get more fascist than that? Hopefully, we will look on that period of American history with the abject horror it deserves. But the one good thing is that it did prompt the rise of Generation X's cultural contributions. And one thing I will say about Generation X is that they, at the very least, were able to recognize the horror of the society they were being ushered into. And even if they didn't have 
developed strategy for resisting it, they were able to express their alienation sufficiently. But yeah, fuck these wasps. We don't need wasps, especially when bees are thriving down in Cuba. So with that being said, let's roll the goddamn music. Before we get into the main topics of discussion, I did want to say a little bit about Paris being on fire because for all the people who love the whole, these are the times we live in imagery, they got nothing better than the Champs-Élysées being covered in tear gas. And while I will weep no tears for this strange automaton who's appropriating Sun King imagery and talks about Africans having too many children and is basically just 21st century Bonapartism. I am a little bit dismayed because I thought I had moved so far left that I wouldn't have to deal with basic ass Francophilia, wherein people are like, oh, why isn't the U.S. more like France? Oh, see, France shows riots work. It's really quite stupid because this, they say that this is the worst violence Paris has seen in a decade, but the one before that was a riot by black people. And that certainly didn't get the same kind of sympathetic takes from Pamela Anderson and company. So it's kind of sad that even in riots, there's still a sort of hierarchy among races and classes but i do find it interesting because it does point to something that the marxists among us are going to have to figure out very quickly which is the role of nationalism in social unrest from a left perspective and while i'm not going to get into it all the way right now all I will say is that one of the big motivating factors behind the Paris Commune was the rage at Louis Napoleon, aka the third Bonaparte, for not being good enough at imperialism and fucking up the Franco-Prussian War. And that all of the great French riots have involved some form of nationalism that on some levels is still colonial in at the very least, European chauvinist. So France has a lot of shit that's gonna get aired out, but we're not going to talk about that right now because we've got a certain Takashi 69 to focus on. Clearly the more engaging topic, or at least the one I wrote the outline about, so. But before we do, I do wanna say a few notes on subjectivity and objectivity because i know i used those words a lot last week and i'm probably going to be using them a lot more because i finally just put the entire concept together so i do have a little bit of enthusiasm about the thing so apologies if it sounds like a grad school dropout but that is basically what i am even though i never went to grad school but i do find very interesting the relationship between subjectivity and objectivity and the way they're used in the philosophical discourse and the way they're used in everyday language so normally we understand subjectivity to be someone's feelings emotions and biases and objectivity is the pure truth the facts but 
then again, you know, you, but then you talk about sex objects and sexual objectification of women, and that's dehumanizing. And it took me a while to figure out, is objectivity the same thing as objectification? And then when the French critical theorists and whoever talk about subjectivity, is they usually see it as a good thing. So what what's the discrepancy when you make someone a subject you give them subjectivity but is that the same subjectivity that we talk about in journalism let's find out an early answer lies in actually sentence grammar if you break it down so in a grammatical breakdown of sentence you have a subject who performs an action and an object whom an action is performed on and that seems to solve the question of objectification, but not objectivity and why we think that it can be good. So subjectivity, which is an important concept in Marxism and postmodernism, you can go back to the etymology where ject means throw and sub means under. So a person who is subjected to something is thrown under it, like a king and his subjects or being subjected to watching a bad movie. But this doesn't really make sense and it's kind of confusing, so a better way to think about subjectivity is that it is consciousness. Being subjected to an experience is to have that experience force its way into your consciousness when you didn't want it to. Similarly, a king is nothing without his subjects, but when you think about that, what that is saying is that a king's existence is dependent upon being recognized by the people he rules over. So yeah, you study subjects like social studies or science or in anthropology there's a subject of an ethnography and in those situations subjects represent consciousness. So you either have a person like in an ethnography or a field of study that informs your own consciousness, which is to say that you are learning this subject in a way to understand the world in a better or different way. So then what is objectivity? We go back to the etymology again. Ject means to throw, but ob, ob, means in the way of before, but also towards. So while a subject is thrown under, like under a microscope, an object is thrown in front of or in the way of. Hence the phrase, I object when you don't like something. You're not saying I, comma, object like you are an object. You're throwing something in the way of an argument you don't like. And by objecting to this argument, you're trying to deprive it of consciousness or its ability to affect consciousness, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it gets to the question of what is an object, but this is also pretty simple. An object is just matter. It's something with mass, right? Like a table or a rock. That's an object. It's something you see, you perceive, but it doesn't act on its own. So if you have an object, this object is something that's before you, something that may be in your way or something you are trying to work towards. Now sometimes these sound interchangeable and sometimes they're used interchangeably, but if you think about it a little bit closelier, then you can notice the difference. So you have so if you think about like an investigation, maybe a police investigation or whatever, you have the subject of an investigation, which is a person or a group of people or an event which was significant, which affected somebody's consciousness. Then you have the object of the investigation, which is the goal usually to figure out what happened. So this starts to make a little more sense. To objectify something is to turn it into an object, to take it from something that has consciousness to mere matter.
there. So that makes sense as to why objectifying someone is bad, but then what is objectivity and why do we think that it's good? And the reason objectivity is desirable in journalism or science is because making something an object is depriving it of its ability to affect your consciousness. So in science, making something an object frees you up to basically do whatever you want to it because you're trying to figure out how it works, what it does, and you're not concerned with its feelings or at least you're not concerned with its feelings the same way you're concerned with your own feelings, right? And this kind of ends up being the thorniness in social science versus quote-unquote hard sciences, but we're not going to get into all that right now. With journalism, it's a bit trickier, but you can get somewhere if you think about how the reason objectivity is good is because as core journalism is about conveying information information that people use to make decisions and the people that are making these decisions they want the objective information they want information about objects what these things are how they function what they're doing and that's more important than the consciousness potential or otherwise of these objects. The problem, of course, is that oftentimes the objects of these this reporting are human being subjects in their own minds. Since every person has their own subjectivity, their own consciousness, they may not always feel the same way about the way this story is being portrayed. But that's not the concern of journalists who are just trying to quote-unquote convey the facts. So, in a Objective journalism is one that does not privilege one subject over the other. Objective journalism turns subjects into objects, but subjects don't always appreciate this, which is why they form PR departments to try to turn themselves back into subjects. But the other problem we run into is journalists themselves, who are often still a subject in their report. If you think about the war correspondent who does the interview in front of you know, the scene with their bulletproof vest on or whatever, these are people who are making themselves the subject of this story even as they try to portray objectivity. And so this is why pure objective journalism is one where the journalist is able to eliminate their own subjectivity, even though, of course, that's always impossible because no human being is going to entirely do that to themselves, but it's a worthy goal to work towards, I guess. So now that we kind of have a working definition of subjects and objects, what are the philosophical and theoretical implications of all this? Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, subjectivity or objectivity, one is better than the other. That's kind of an absurd concept. But I will say that it's very hard for any particular person to process multiple subjectivities at once, which is why when someone does, it's usually some sort of religious or psychedelic experience, or why they say the mark of a great mind is the ability to hold two competing ideas at once. Because while people can process multiple subjectivities in profound moments, it's very hard to do in one's day-to-day -day life. So, for the management of a given society on a day-to-day -day level, we basically have two choices. And one is chasing objectification, wherein we deprive ourselves and each other of consciousness in order to more easily deal with each other, where we don't see each other as subjects, just as various objects 
performing actions, understanding each other as such, but not really getting into why anyone thinks or feels the way they do in any given situation. But we don't really like this. And you no, know, a society where everyone else is just an object that's basically in your way, a task to be completed, that's kind of a hellish dystopia. So we try not to do that all the time, honestly. But the other main alternative is basically to elevate one subjectivity above any competing ones and turn that into the main subjectivity that is then elevated as a collective subjectivity aka groupthink sorry to use or orwell's terms but either path has its own troubles and while we obviously would not like to turn any human being that we know of into an object it's also true that subjects or consciousnesses are try are constantly trying to figure out who they are and the easiest way to do that is to compare themselves to objects in front of them so when one subjectivity or consciousness meets another they may be able to tolerate each other initially but eventually conflict will arise until either one subjectivity submits to another and assumes the role of an object and this basically in a nutshell in a horrible nutshell is the master-slave dialectic or they recognize the similarities in each other and merge into a new singular consciousness or subjectivity cooperating in pursuit of a new object of course these aren't the only two paths right subjects can interact with each other in ways that allow themselves and the other subjects to develop themselves without objectifying other people and this is basically what a loving relationship is yeah i just solved love thank you even though hegel says to love someone is to treat them as if they were dead you know he supported imperial pressure so what does he really know the bigger problem is that subjectivities will fight and nobody wants to be turned into an object and if they can they will resist doing so so if objectifying a certain group of people is necessary for a particular project you know you're gonna have to use violence to do that so this is basically what Althusser and Lacan or whoever I'm still bad on French critical theory but maybe we'll get to that later but when you hear subjectivity talks about in a philosophical or Marxist framework this is basically what they're talking about they're talking about consciousness but while we're on the topic I do want to briefly touch on other applications of the same prefixes because prefixes are great in figuring out what a word's actual function is. So in this case, we're going to talk about suppression versus oppression, and they're often used interchangeably, but they carry noted differences. If you think about it right, like a state suppresses an uprising, people are oppressed by a state. What's the difference? But they are different words, and they do in some ways relate to subjectivity and objectivity. So they are the same prefixes, right? Sub slash sub, it's the same thing. It means under, ob slash up, ob slash op, means in the way of, or against, or towards. And press in the verb form means basically push down or move against. So if you think about it, suppression is pushing under while oppression is pushing against or in the way of basically without any relationship to you so if you're suppressing someone it still implies some sort of relationship where you're putting something in its hierarchical framework 
but there's still a relationship that has to be preserved. You're still recognizing the people that you're suppressing. But oppression is basically people who are in the way. They're oppressed people are basically objects to be dealt with. They're not seen as having a consciousness that even needs to be pushed back against. They are just matter. This is why I'm always a little bit wary about narratives about this state oppresses its people because a state is nothing without its subjects. And so in any state there still has to be some form of mutual recognition between a state and the people it rules over, so though we will maybe get to this next week. So if a state is oppressive, it's usually because there's a particular privileged subjectivity that it is serving, as well as the people that are objects that are just in the way of whatever thing the state is trying to accomplish. And incidentally, this whole business of treating people as objects is why there's a big interplay between colonialism and anthropology, and it's also why subjectivity or consciousness is at the core of every movement for liberation. So that's the dry philosophical shit. Let's get into the real shit, which is the quote-unquote blicky with the stiffy Takashi 69 Rico and the neoliberal state. Let's go. because I love the dissociation of scrolling through the stream and immersing myself in the insane zeitgeist. And I see the headlines come through. Takashi69, world-renowned rapper, international superstar, has been indicted on federal charges of guns, drug trafficking, and racketeering. And this is right when my edibles have kicked in. So I am in hardcore experiencing the moment at this time. And it is one of those genuine Twitter moments where you are sitting in front of your computer experiencing the vast, vast contradictions, beautiful contradictions, and synergies of humanity that Twitter at its best can provide. But it's conflicting because why are people so happy about somebody getting indicted? Partially because everyone saw this coming. Everyone knew that somebody who was wilding out as much as he has and has made such a sport out of it was bound to have some consequences. It was one of those moments where you almost felt like all was right with the world. It's a sense of cosmic justice being wrought. And we will get back to that. And to clear things up up front, I'm not weighing in on my opinion on Takashi 69 as a rapper, artist, or media figure, or even the movement of SoundCloud rap that he represents. That is an entire other episode that we will get to absolutely. 
For now, I just want to focus on the moment, but before we get to that moment, let's take a step back to the Breakfast Club interview that he had conducted just a few days before. Because for better or for worse, the attraction to Takashi 69 was that of a free soul, somebody who completely flouted the restrictions of the society he was in. And again, I'm not saying this was good or even socially useful, but it was how he was able to hold the spotlight. So around 7 minutes and 30 seconds into this interview, he says, I'm genuinely someone who does what they want. And isn't that honestly the biggest dream of American liberty? To do whatever you want? Isn't that the freedom that is the driving force of this ideological project we call a nation? And then 15 minutes and 30 seconds in around, he says, I'ma get away with what I want to get away with. And once again, America always glorifies the outlaw, even when or percent or perhaps especially when they are problematic. That pure sense of personal liberation, where no greater cause or higher mission is even necessary, just the unrestrictedness to do whatever you want. That's what America is supposed to be about. So why is America now happy that the federal government of the United States is looking to send him away possibly for the rest of his life. But that mythology is more complicated because America loves to build outlaw figures up only to tear them down. And while in the primitive accumulation days of the Wild West, you were able to get away with a lot more, in the main side of late capitalism that is New York City, you have to form relationships and that plays more of a role. Which is why we bring in Treyway or I guess the Nine Trey Bloods Gang, which provides the organizational framework in which a one Daniel Hernandez can continue his outlaw status, even though bringing it in adds a whole other set of complications. And also, if you add in the panopticon that is social media, said persona is even harder to maintain. You can see in the interview that he recognizes this and he's already trying to negotiate an exit strategy and the timing of his arrest is noteworthy. And this is why we bring in the RICO law, because hearing the word racketeering in the 21st century is a little bit strange, and it's not as though any of the people indicted were running an actual protection racket. We're more talking about the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which is a federal law that was enacted in 1970 under the Nixon administration, sort of at the tail end of the Keynesian welfare state model. And it was ostensibly targeted at the mafia, but you also have to consider the social context of it. I found a paper that was done by, I think, a University of Colorado law student. That was a good job of laying all that out, and I will definitely provide a link to it in the description. But what's important to understand is that part of the power of this act is in pursuing not so much the danger of organized crime itself, but the danger of developed organizations that operate outside the purview of the state. So this is a law that's intentionally left a little bit vague to allow a broad 
level of discretion among prosecutors to be able to go after whoever they want to go after. And if you're wondering about the name, it comes from the character Rico in some old Edward G. Robinson 30s mafia movie. And yeah, it's one of the earliest examples of Congress using stupid acronyms to title laws. But the main point is that it allows the feds to break the back of whatever organization they're targeting by going after the financing of the organization itself, which ends up implicating basically whoever they want to charge. They can indict everyone as a group instead of focusing on trying to prove the individual crimes of the members in said organization. And indeed, in RICO charges, you don't have to actually prove that they committed the crimes alleged, just that they benefited financially from them, or crossed state lines with the money, or affected interstate commerce. Fun fact, crossing state lines or affecting interstate commerce is one of the main workarounds that allow the federal government to basically enforce any law that they want to in a federal system that supposedly supports state right, states' rights. So this law does have a wide variety of applications, and it's been used in civil suits from to go after everyone from the Catholic Church to Major League Baseball, and it's also been used to go after white-collar crime, which has prompted some outrage from right-wing circles. I even found an article in a conservative journal that called for its repeal because they see it as a broad overreach of federal power, which is probably true, but it's kind of relevant because the law works. On Twitter, people brought up often the 93% conviction rating of RICO charges, and I'm not going to get into the statistic itself, but it points to the larger goal of the law, which is empower the feds to operate a certain position in everyone's imagination, which is that when the feds come for you, they're, you're done. The whole point of federal charges is that you cannot beat them because they've already basically wiretap the shit out of you. They've got the entire case built, so when they bring the charges, they already have all of the evidence, and there's nothing you can do about it. And even Takashi 69 recognizes this. In that same interview, he says, I only fear two things, God and the FBI. The irony for small government conservatives is that the main application of the RICO law is something they definitely support, which is going after street gangs. And indeed, I saw in a YouTube video, and once again, I'm not going to verify the statistic, but I think it gets at a larger point, which was that like 86% of RICO charges are brought against people of color, and I think that kind of makes the point. And as such, the RICO law has kind of a special relationship to hip-hop, and part of that is that black music has always flourished in what we should call extra-legal environments. Part of this is a combination of the lack of access to capital in black America and also major labels' reticence to sell anything authentically black to a mass white audience. And this goes all the way back to jazz music, whose main danger was that it thrived in speakeasies and, and other criminal hideouts. All the way to Anita Baker, the famous R&B singer who 
had a few of her albums funded by the original Rick, Rick Ross, the famous crack dealer from the 80s, not the stupid prison guard who tries to act like he's that person now. People forget this, but all the labels that broke the major hip-hop stars were independent from Def Jam to Ruthless Records to Death Row, even Bad Boy or Rap-A-Lot Records. Major labels only got involved when the profitability was undeniable, but they never took the risk in actually breaking any of these acts. And one of the main misunderstood things is that the criminality in gangster rap was always more on the business side than it was by the rappers themselves, because nobody ever actually has time to be a rap star and a drug kingpin. Most criminal charges that are brought against rappers aren't that different from your average major entertainment figure. And even when you have rappers that did start out as drug dealers, like Jeezy or T.I. or whatever, rapping was a way to exit that life, not enhance it. And even when they did continue trapping, they were trying to raise the funds for their music project. But the realities of the business side was not what the old white power structure of the late 80s and 90s was concerned about. They were concerned about the music itself. and They were not going to take this outbreak of aggressive music lying down. In Hip Hop Evolution, Luther Campbell of 2 Live Crew makes an interesting point about the obscenity trial that 2 Live Crew went through, which is that it was a trial run at criminalizing explicit hip-hop as a whole. Now, that trial obviously didn't succeed, but the war against hip-hop didn't go away, it just matured. If they couldn't go after the music because of First Amendment reasons, they'd just go after the rapper them rappers themselves and labels as organizations. One of the things I always find interesting is that rappers perhaps the only category of celebrity where you get less leeway from the state, not more. And this is even more pronounced when the main subject of hip-hop moves from reenacting scenes of hood life to focusing on wealth accumulation by any means necessary, which of course is actually the bigger threat to the white supremacist power structure, leaving aside the political debates around black capitalism, which we're not going to get into today. Biggie Smalls is probably the first case study in rapping about money itself, um, alongside the paranoia of the feds, federal agents mad because I'm flagrant, right? And since then, the paranoia of the feds watching has become a greater theme in a lot of hip-hop songs. If you think about the Meek Mill Drake song Rico, which is named after that law, it's interesting because Drake's concern is that his crew is wilding out so hard that they could all get hit with Rico charges. And he's not wrong in the sense that it does only take a couple of people in an organization acting out to bring Rico charges because the law actually is that vague. But underneath the prosecution of hip-hop are interesting questions about hip-hop status as art itself. Because in the Western tradition, there's obviously a long history of overlooking antisocial or criminal behavior in service of the art, but one place that does not really apply is hip-hop. Of course, you know, this isn't a problem for the racists who just think rap is trash, but when prosecutors use rap lyrics as confessions, it raises significant questions. 
Now, part of the problem is that hip-hop is a victim of the neoliberal turn in art that sees art as purely for self-expression as opposed to create as opposed to expressing larger emotional truths that may not be factual and it's kind of funny because people forget that like horrorcore was a genre and it still exists on in the underground but nobody thought bushwick bill was doing all the things that he was saying he was just saying that he was doing them but there but the other danger was the commercial need to sell escapist ghetto fantasies as real to suburban white audiences. Of course, when we have these discussions in the Western tradition, the question is supposed to come down to the work itself, because biographical questions are relevant. We're supposed to be only concerned about the text, but hip-hop exists in a sort of limbo status because it's also the face of American youth culture itself. And so it doesn't just provide music, but also models on how to live. And one of the things I find interesting is that despite hip-hop's popularity among educated white liberals, it's only made a few roads into the academy itself and is very under-theorized. Now, this is once again another question that cannot be resolved in this episode, so I'm not going to try. But one of the things I do find interesting is how the criminalization of hip-hop gets absorbed into the narrative itself. So now, going to jail because the cops have it out for you because you are a rapper with a defined image is seen as a standard part of a rapper's career. Tupac probably provided the prototype for this with the infamous footage of him walking out of the courtroom with a swagger and throwing up two middle fingers. Once again, we're going to leave aside what he was actually charged for. And also, once again, the impact on the music of itself, the impact on the music itself is another question that we will get back to in a different episode. But I bring it up to point to the sort of materialist evolution, the way that state intrusion and surveillance has worked its way into pop culture. I titled this section of the outline, Feds Watching in the Neoliberal State, and I don't have a transition, but I thought it was a cool line, so I'm putting it in there. So people like to point to the rise of global capital as proof that governments are endangered species, but this is incorrect because multinational corporations have a heavy dependence on states to act as enforcers, not just against present potential resistance from the working class, but also against each other, which is why a key function of successful neoliberalism is a highly advanced state apparatus of repression. And an added benefit of this surveillance state is that it promotes the atomization that neoliberalism feeds off of because people can't even get together to plot criminal conspiracies anymore. And even better, because the state does this using technology developed in the private sector, so it's still profitable. And one of the key things about RICO is that it gives greater freedom for prosecutors not just to bring charges, but also to set up massive wiretapping operations that they could then maybe use for other situations, for other charges. And this actually bears out dialectically, because one of the hidden stories of the past 150 years or so is the consolidation of the state as the ultimate authority. And this is actually the neoliberal end of history reading 
of the Hegelian dialectic once again, something we will get to in an entire episode later on that Francis Fukuyama took, basing it off of Alexander Kujeve, who provided a lot of the philosophical underpinnings of the EU. And fun fact, he also identified as a Stalinist, but that's a different point. The basic gist, and I'm definitely going to be butchering this to some degree, but it's that once you remove God from the equation, once you get rid of, once you put in a secular state and you get rid of the divine right of kings, basically the state has to assume this place as God. And Kajeve didn't really view totalitarianism as bad, honestly. It was more the elevation of the liberal state approaching the divine and its level of power was the highest function of human struggle for freedom. So when Takashi puts God and the FBI on the same level, this is actually the ultimate success. So while in an anarcho-slash-libertarian, and I mean this both in the libertarian-socialist and also the more right-wing sense framework, celebrating the triumph of the feds is a little bit weird. It is logical as a subjective experience, precisely because the feds have successfully been able to position themselves as arbiters of cosmic levels of justice. And part of this is because a lot of the state's effectiveness is theater. And that's also another topic we will get into later on. But one thing I will say is that while the totalitarian left, quote unquote, is largely a boogeyman, despite anyone's complaints about the overarching level of state power, only the most hardcore anarchists won't cheer, however quietly, when we see federal power used to defeat people we deem deserving of it. When the RICO law is used against white-collar criminals or evangelicals, I mean, we're not really as concerned about the broad power it gives to prosecutors. And it gets to a larger point, which is that, like, we may be against this state because of its class character, but it's not like if we have state power, we would want a less powerful state. You know, people like seeing well-executed operations. That's, that's just true. And I don't necessarily have a moral for this, but perhaps the only thing I will say is that if we want the state to wither away, we do have to actually make it witherable. <laughs> but it's also important to remember that even that possibility can only exist in a post-capitalist framework. The other thing I've found interesting is that in the reactions to the news, the only people who would never wish the vengeance of the state upon their opponents are in fact like the true gangsters. For them, jail is a fate worse than death. So perhaps where does the real struggle for freedom lie? Maybe that's a hot take, but it's also, you know, perhaps real. And it's something to think about when we consider freedom to be one of the highest aims of humanity. So that's all I got this time. I promise we're working towards greater coherence as we build more confidence in ourselves. But in the meantime, hopefully just this experience will send your brain send your brain in all sorts of strange directions and that's mostly what i'm hoping to achieve is just to stimulate brain activity in other people more than specifically trying to make people 
agree with whatever argument I'm trying to make. And no, I wasn't kidding. Next time, we will be peeling back the imperialist lies about Democratic Campuchea. Or, you know, something like that. So, stay strong, and let's get this bread. I guess that's what the white people who appropriate AAVE are saying this week. Tell me something different. Yeah.